all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. You know, I've always asked the question, what what markers matter? And what, what makes a difference for the clinical effect you're trying to achieve? What is the outcome you're driving for? And how do we know you're actually doing it? And how and if you are doing it, how efficiently are you getting to that outcome? This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and Lime Journey Guide, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 225 with Dr. Laurie Young. She's a good friend of mine. I was really happy that she agreed to come on the show and share her knowledge with all of us. We had a lot of fun. Also, I'd like to welcome Aurora, the show producer and brains behind Lime Ninja Radio. Hello. And in this episode, you'll learn three main things. What histamine is and how it deals with more than your allergies, how your blood type influences your health problems, and why it's important to have flexibility in your immune system. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lyme Ninjas. You are the reason we have half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd like to welcome all you new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lyme Ninja. Yes, welcome. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. And this past week we've had listeners tune in from Chile to the Czech Republic and from Turkey to Tanzania. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about this week's guest, Dr. Laurie Young. From her website, thriveforhealth.com, Dr. Laurie Young has a postdoctoral fellowship in integrative medicine at Wake Forest University. Dr. Young trained in medical acupuncture and functional medicine through the Helms Medical Institute and the Institute for Functional Medicine. Her passion for holistic healing and bridging the gap between conventional and alternative wellness therapies led her to open Thrive Integrative Health in 2012. Dr. Young utilizes a functional medical approach to address the root causes of chronic illness and other wellness issues. She employs a mind-body-spirit approach and emphasizes the importance of patients taking an active role in improving and maintaining their health. Okay, McKay, why did you want to talk to Dr. L- Dr. Young? I want to call her Dr. Lori. We can call her Dr. Lori. <laughs> she won't mind. 
Dr. Lori has a very interesting take on infectious disease, and we kind of skirt around it in the interview, so I just want to bring it up on top of the table here. She's of a firm belief that a lot of Lyme disease can be treated by balancing out other pathways in the body and allowing the body's immune system to work like it's supposed to work. So she believes that a lot of cases of chronic Lyme, what's happened is the body's not able to fend for itself anymore, and your hormones are out of whack, your gut's out of whack, all these other problems are present, and simply giving antibiotics will not bring your body back into balance because there's more going on than just the infection. So she brings that to the table. I think that's really important in the beginning of your Lyme journey when you're really beginning to look at, okay, what do I need to kill off in my body and how are you going to kill it off? Are you going to choose antibiotics? Are you going to choose an herbal route? Are you going to support your entire system and hope that your body can do it? Actually, we're kind of hoping that all of those, all of the above, the antibiotics and the herbs do work. The other part of the Lyme journey that's important is once we've gone through various killing protocols, clearing protocols, and gotten rid of mold and infections like that, and there's still problems, it may or may not still be an active infection, right? There's still all these other problems that can be present. So I think it's so important to think outside the tick, so to speak, and bring in all these other factors. And I think Dr. Lori does an absolutely fabulous job with doing that, and I know you're going to love this interview. Hang on to your seats. Here she comes. Hello, Dr. Young. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Good morning. I'm so happy to speak with you. We've been friends now for a while, and it's been way too long getting you on the podcast. Well, I'm very excited for our time together this morning. Really looking forward to it. Thanks. Now, before we get rolling here, you're an MD. How how does one this day and age get inspired to be a doctor? Because there is so much that's kind of in the path of being the kind of doctor you want to be. What what inspired you to get into medicine? Well, that's a great question. And I will tell you, um, I had a first career before going on to medical school. And that first career really inspired me to go on and complete the med- all the medical training. Um, I had a more than 10-year career in doing healthcare informatics and outcomes research. And uh, so when I left college and had my first job, um, I was exposed to healthcare in um, a cardiac catheterization laboratory. And in the process of being there in a very big academic hospital in Boston, I um, began to see that there were opportunities to improve the delivery of healthcare and to learn to develop the metrics or markers that show us that not only are we delivering a good clinical outcome, we're doing it at a reasonable cost and, you know, all taking into account all the factors that, that define what quality is. So, um, of course, I did a lot of academic work and informatics for uh, well over a decade and published and wrote and, you know, wrote software and developed all the analytics and then decided to go on and get uh, more academic training because, you know, I wanted more access to be able to think more thoughtfully about the delivery of healthcare. At, you know, after 10 years, I went on to get a master's in outcomes research and then on to medical school because I really knew that in order to think more thoughtfully about how we can improve the delivery of healthcare, you needed to be 
have the clinical training to be able to think about it. So um, I hit midlife and went to medical school after that. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's a serious midlife crisis. (laughs) I think so, actually. And I think I went, you know, when I kind of went to school um, in the, uh, with that idea that I was interested in at the time, wasn't sure if I was going to end up being a clinician or really thinking of more because I had already had a company that was developing um, software systems to track and look at outcomes, you know, delivery of healthcare and track the outcomes. And that was all very popular back in the 90s. And we were one of the first to come to the table with some stuff around the cardiovascular area. And um, so I wasn't sure if I was going to be using the training to be more thoughtful as an entrepreneur and develop more of the analytical and the software but as you, but as I realized, um, you can't step far afield from the clinical domain if you're going to stay relevant in whatever kind of innovation that you do. So straddling that divide that I'm doing now, where I have an office practice that really inspires my thinking, as I'm thinking more broadly about how to build um, systems and approaches to treatment of problems that are uh, effective and um, clinically, as well as from a cost point of view and a resource point of view for the patient. You know, that's absolutely amazing. I wasn't aware of all your background there. And usually when somebody's, a, I'm going to call you a numbers jockey, was a, a num- mm-hmm. working with numbers and data, they don't often what branch over into the clinical world. And then even if they do for some training like you've had, maybe they get into public health, uh, get a PhD in public health or something like that. But then to open up, a private practice to make sure that your ears to the ground, so to speak, is is truly remarkable. Mm, thank you. It's, it, it, for me, I learned, you know, you learn in the trenches. And uh, when I started my work, I was at, um, you know, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So we worked with a lot of very uh, high caliber cardiologists that were doing very state-of-the-art technologies at the time um, to treat coronary artery disease. And as a young, you know, 20-something, I came into the scene and I quickly realized that, uh, you know, people, that, that there's all kinds of different care being delivered to patients and some of which is thought to make them better, but truly maybe not. And how is it that we know what we're doing um, is the right thing to do? And truly, that sounds like a, an obvious question that in most industries outside of healthcare and manufacturing, people have to know what they're doing is you know, uniform and deliver the good result or otherwise people don't buy their product. But as you know, in healthcare, it's easy for people to kind of pass the buck and, you know, patients get passed around, costs get shifted and buried amongst all the different players in that healthcare model of reimbursement. So it's hard for people to take responsibility for the work that they do and to understand that the, and whatever they have done on behalf of a patient, if it's really doing what they think they're doing. And so just those basic ideas of, that were very interesting to me, very young, allowed me um, in that opportunity, in that setting to begin to, to develop a data set or a data model that really described what we were, the kind of service we were giving to our patients. And then as we analyzed what we were doing, we were often sometimes surprised that, wow, there's opportunities to think about this in a different way. And so that was really my first introduction to how data and clinical care, and I think it all came more naturally to me um, to think that way. And um, I guess the programming and the computer science side of it was an acquired skill, but it became 
like you need a pencil to write on a piece of paper. You need to be able to learn the computing piece so you can actually model the information you're trying to do. And um, once I learned and had some practical skills around the programming and the computing side, the statistical analysis part came also more naturally to me. We, you know, there's a lot of info, what you can learn from information if it's really reflective of what you're doing. And, um, and I think that's really missing in healthcare right now is people being responsible for their outcomes and understanding at what cost is coming to society and to the patients too. That uh, early experience has burned into my consciousness and, and I realized revealed a strong drive for me and a passion towards thinking about um, how are we going to help people untangle the chronic issues that they have? Where do we start? What's the most effective strategy? There's probably a lot of effective strategies, but what is what are effective strategies that get people to an outcome, um, delivering the results at a at a cost that people can bear, both at a personal level and at a societal level? You know, that's so interesting because a lot of the outcomes that we have in medicine don't necessarily translate to quality of life. Like lowering somebody's cholesterol is like woohoo, your cholesterol is lowered, which may or may not be a bad thing. We're not going to get into that. And does it make you feel better, right? Are you going to live longer? Does it even matter? But we can measure it right. and it's cheap to measure and we measure it and spend a lot of time managing this number. And is it actually something worth measuring? So those, these fascinating questions. Now, on to your practice. Do you remember your first Lyme disease patient? Yes, I do actually. And so when, yeah, when, like, what was your approach back then? So what I want to get to tell the story of like, what was your approach then? And then what's evolved? And then we'll get into these biomarkers that you want to talk about that I want to talk about too. Well, the first Lyme patient that I saw, I mean, they had come in and they've been diagnosed elsewhere with Lyme and they had failed a lot of the uh, traditional pharmacologic approaches using the traditional antibiotics that people were giving. And you know, by the time they arrive at the door, they're feeling very debilitated and, and, and not only in their health, but also financially, they've, they've invested a lot towards their recovery and are making um, progress. So for me, my early approaches were not a lot different than what I'm doing now, although I think I've, I think I've pared down the markers that give me a lot of information, but I began to kind of go back looking at it from more of a metabolic level, what was going on. I have always been able to treat my patients using botanical products and never really relying upon um, any antibiotic therapies. So let, let's pause there for a second because that's, so you come from data, right? You're this hardcore data analytic person. You say, I really need to get into medicine so I understand what the source of this is and how to apply the information that I'm, I'm pulling out of here. But then how do you make the switch from pharmacologicals to botanicals? Because that's not a normal thing to do either. I think somewhere in my heart, I'm probably a naturopath in my soul. <laughs> and I think I have always had the thought, both intellectually, from a scholastic or scholarly point of view, that that the body has some innate capacities to heal and regenerate itself, and that, that what we need mostly comes from the complexities of compounds found in nature. And great traditions and systems of medicine have been set up that have been, for thousands of years, to the test of time, that have, reused on, have relied upon those products. So I think... I was very early of the mindset that that we need to understand where the body is lacking something and need to support it with what the body understands. 
Did you go into medical school thinking this, or did this happen after med school? Um, I when I went to medical school, it was very interesting. Um, uh, I thought that my my singular goal for starting school, I was very interested in broad strokes. I mean, I had studied cardiovascular disease down to the most had gotten to the most detailed level of thinking about what a success might be, what we're doing in a certain blockage in a certain part of the artery that we could name and we could, you know, really talk about a, a success at that very granular level. But when you wrap it all into a human being and you think about things of healing and suffering, it's like, how are we going to deal with a human being? And when I went to medical school, you got to remember, I've been working for more than a decade. I was well into my middle of my life there, and I was much more interested in people and less about the parts. The parts are in service to the whole. And I wanted markers that, so that philosophically, when I think about healing, it was also, again, thinking about, again, you can't, can't divorce the mind and the body and the spirit. So in the physical realm, I, I began thinking, well, how, what does the body actually need? What, what's going on here? And that leads you to thinking about biochemistry. And then I guess the, the whole notion of natural therapies just became an obvious step for me. It was never like I didn't understand that there might be a role for traditional pharmacologic therapies. But I, I guess I wanted the challenge of thinking how I could do it without the prescription pad in my hand. Like, how might I use natural remedies to encourage the body's healing processes? Is it possible to do it without needing to rely on medicine um, if you didn't have to? Because of the downside, because I had obviously read and studied and gone. And by that time, I guess I left something important out. By the time I left medical school, I realized that a lot of the training that I needed to be a thoughtful clinician for people, I, I didn't really learn. And I needed to reframe the kind of information that I had gathered in medical training to allow me to see it in a different way. And for me to do that re required me to go and seek other education. And so I set about uh, developing a, a list of uh, qualifications or information that I needed and where would I go to be the most reputable scholarly place to get that information to allow me to utilize and access the information I'd learned in school, very traditional, but to see it in a different way. So the functional medicine training happened, the medical acupuncture training happened, the training in prolotherapy, all the skills that I wanted to acquire exposed me to this kind of these ideas. So it was with that that I was doing very rigorously uh, right after I finished, um, I was seeking more education and um, I, felt, I realized I had to take responsibility for myself as a clinician to, 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 to develop my curriculum of understanding what makes people suffer, right? And then how to make, help them heal. And I didn't think that the schooling that I had while there's information delivered was given to me in, in a framework that really was oriented with that idea. It's just absolutely remarkable. And I mean, talk about swimming upstream, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the standard, and you know, I have a, a friend who's been on the podcast, uh, couple times his name is uh, dr rob abbott and he left his residency program essentially to pursue the education that you're talking about because he felt like he was so constrained and was being trained in the wrong way uh, that he was really yeah. worried that he would lose lose himself so he he left his residency after the first year which is mm -hmm. you're cr crazy you know you got a mountain of debt he's got a build a practice on his own now. He can't fit into the system because he hasn't done his residency. It's it's a remarkable thing, yet it's what's needed. 
but it, it's such an unusual thing. Yes, and I left part of the way to remind because you got to remember when I went to school, I was going to be going as an entrepreneur to develop more thoughtful analytical systems that clinicians could use to figure out if what they're doing may matter. You know, I've always asked the question, what, what markers matter? And what, what makes a difference for the clinical effect you're trying to achieve? What is the outcome you're driving for? And how do we know you're actually doing it? And, how, and if you are doing it, how efficiently are you getting to that outcome? And so with those ideas really solidly in place for me, and as you go to training and you think, okay, I'm, I'm getting um, some training that will give me a credential, allow me access to the trenches so I can be more thoughtful about what I'm doing, you have to figure out if what you're getting is going to meet your needs. And at some point when you're nearly 40 going to school, you know, and you've had your career, you're like, you know, I know what I want to do. And then you realize that some of the training you have to do, you have to take uh, responsibility for that yourself. So some of us realize that and, you know, you have to make that own, your own calculation in your mind about, do I want to wander down a residency pathway? For me, the straddle was psychiatry and anesthesia, both dealt with suffering in one way or the other. One focuses on the physical realm, one focuses on the psychological or mental realm, and neither do they meet in the middle, rarely, and you can't really get to a whole thing. And along that line, you know, I, I was given an opportunity to do a fellowship, actually, in integrative medicine. And so I did that. And then I went on from there to do start doing the other training that I knew was necessary for me to look at things in a, with a different lens. And so like this other gentleman, we some of us understand that we to innovate, you have to kind of remove yourself from the, like being a sheep walking down the line, you know, you're not going to get there in that incrementalist approach. I'd already worked that way for more than a decade in the Harvard system and seeing how that, how that goes. That's one strategy, but it doesn't let you leapfrog. And if you're a developer, you want to think uh, and be unconstrained and try to make new knowledge. You've got to figure out how you're going to do that. And sometimes that requires big decisions. And I, you know, for me, I came to that, that decision point for a couple of reasons. And I had some personal reasons for thinking about that with a child and some health issues with him. But, but also on a professional level, I knew what I was learning was not going to give me what I needed. And I certainly didn't want to. Con- so while I re- I'm very respectful and understand the pro- those, that pathway, I, I understand what my, my contribution that I wanted to develop was going to require that I make a different, a different path. You've set up the next part of the our conversation beautifully. We've gotten the big picture here and talking about finding uh, markers that matter and kind of zooming out and seeing the whole person and zooming in and looking inside. And you've identified three pretty basic markers that most people have seen on a blood test that you find are absolutely critical to know and manage a person's health. And what are those three markers? Um, I rely very heavily on whole blood histamine levels, C-reactive protein, both cardiac C-reactive protein and whole body CRP, and a homocysteine level, and uh, amongst a few other ones. Those three will tell me a lot about a person. Oh, and blood type. That's the third one. That's the fourth one. You know, I, I do learn some things about blood type. Well, perfect. So let's go through each of those just to refresh people who know a little bit about it to refresh and people who don't know to just, you know, what are the, like the Wikipedia entry? They're very short. Like what, so what is, what is histamine and what is the whole, you said whole blood histamine? Is that what you said? The marker? Well, you can measure histamine 
in different ways. And so for, you know, the marker that I use is the histamine measurement in the whole blood. You order it from LabCorp or Quest, you might get a different reading, but the one we're looking for is a whole blood level. And what exactly, so that's measuring circulating histamine, right? Yes, it is measuring circulated histamine. You know, I borrow on some of the work done by William Walsh, who identifies an optimal therapeutic range of histamine that we all know histamine is a very important um, chemical in the body. It's often involved in allergy and inflammation, but it's also a very important neurotransmitter. So without it, you can't stay awake. Um, hence, antihistamines make people sleepy. So you need it for brain function. The body uses it in cellular response to um, infections or toxins or, you know, noxious stimuli. The body will often release histamine from certain immune cells. And so histamine will give you a broad, you know, a broad understanding of where someone's sitting, both on an um, inflammation side, um, allergy, environmental, you know, reactivity, but also it gives a, a bit of a marker of how well your body is methylating. Um, because histamine can be, when it's too low or too high, you might think of people as being over under methylated. And why is that? So for me, looking at that marker, I can already begin to put together some of what I'm seeing when people come in making certain complaints, it'll, you know, I look at the lab and I will see uh, histamines in the 150 or 200 range. And you're like, wow, that makes sense. Okay. No wonder, um, you know, so it begins to explain some of what's going on with people. Okay. So let's pause there for a second. So what's a normal range for this histamine? So I uh, like to look between 40 and 70. And so a 55 or 60 is perfect, you know. So, you know, you look at the trends. If someone's trending down in the low 40s, you're thinking, wow, maybe overmethylated. Someone is trending upward, you know, above 70, 80, 90, 100. You're thinking, wonder what, if, if they're undermethylated. And then, then thinking about that. And so, um, so methylation. 70 has been that range. So methylation and histamine are on the opposite ends of the seesaw. They're antagonists to each other, correct? Well, you know, if the body really. is producing, if the body is producing um, more methyl groups that can be that can be used downstream through the methionine cycle, some of those methyl groups will uh, act will inactivate your histamines and drive them down. So when you're dealing with people's mutations and, you know, people love to talk about, you know, genetic polymorphisms and certain enzymes like the MTHFR and everybody's getting methylfolate, methyl B12 and wondering why they feel terrible pushing the methylation cycle in some, some respects. Um, when you look at somebody who's feeling terribly, they might be feeling terribly because they're on methylfolate or methyl B12 or something that's driving the histamine too low and the too low of histamine will make people feel awful. Um, and then too high a histamine that people feel offer for different reasons. So, yes, too much methyl, generally speaking, as a growth rule of thumb, will um, inactivate and drive down your histamine levels. So you might get a sense of whether someone's aggressive, you know, how that methionine cycle is running. Or at least you wonder if you need to worry about what's going on in methylation um, in the methylation cycle for that patient. Okay, so let's move on to CRP. And you mentioned two different types. What are the different types of CR, uh, C-reactive protein? Let's, I'm using the acronym there. but So what are the different types of C-reactive protein and how do you use those? Um, so um, C-reactive protein is a marker of, generally thought of as a marker of systemic inflammation. Um, now, 
Um, there is so when you look at a, a generic C reactive protein, that, that's more reflective of of the entire body. Um, uh, but when you look at a cardiac CRP, uh, you know uh, that is more confined to what's inflammation in your vascular system. So a CRP is a substance that is produced in the liver um, in response to inflammation. And um, again, when you're looking at a, a cardiac CRP, that's a marker that's giving you a risk of inflammation that's most that's more represented what's in the vascular vascular system. So you know, when I look at CRP, cardiac CRPs on patients, I'm worried about um, heart attacks and stroke risk, right? Um, problems with circulation. And um, a whole body CRP will be inflammation in the body, but not only confined to what's in the circulation. Okay. And so the the high, when somebody says, I've got a, a high sensitivity CRP, that's the cardiac CRP? Well, high sensitivity is the assay, but if the word's cardiac beside it, uh, okay. be, then it will say cardiac. So you have to get a, it has to say cardiac CRP. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Mm -hmm. And homocysteine. That's also in the methylation cycle, right? Yes. So what is homocysteine so, doing for us? So homocysteine is, um, is an amino acid, and it's uh, commonly found in the body. Uh, and homocysteine, as most people know, is part of the methionine cycle. So methionine can be metabolize uh, the production of SAMI um, into homocysteine, and then homocysteine can be regenerated back into methionine with the addition of methylfolate, methyl B12 in that methionine cycle, or up through the bioptorin, I mean, the, B, the uh, PEMT um, pathway using trimethylglycine, you can regenerate methionine. So basically, homocysteine is a marker um, of methylation, but homocysteine is very important in the production of sulfur, um, sulfate in the body, also in the um, production of methyl groups so that the body can have methylation reactions running, which is useful for, for many, many, many types of reactions in the body from production of neurotransmitters, um, detoxification of hormones and other toxins. So homocysteine as a marker is very powerful when it's abnormal for understanding that there must be downstream issues that have to do with methylation and detoxification and sulfation. Now, I forgot to ask you on the C-reactive protein, what are the levels that you like to see in the cardiac and in the whole blood or the whole body CRP? Well, one of the reasons that I really like CRP and one of the reasons I really like homocysteine is not only powerful markers, but as a functional or integrative physician trying to figure out what markers matter, you'd like to use the markers that everybody understands and there's lots of peer review around them, you know, peer reviewed research. So peer reviewed um, studies that whether you're a conventional practicing physician or whatever side of the spectrum you're on, people understand these markers and they're not controversial. Um, and so looking at the literature, it's, known that for CRP, the lowest risk uh, associated, if you're looking at a cardiac CRP, which my patients are caring about, risk of dying from a death from a, a heart attack or a stroke is 0.5. Now, you might look at a traditional reference range coming from the major lab companies, and they'll say less than one is, you know, an, a low risk, and, and there's one to three and over three. 
But just because uh, people are in some kind of reference range doesn't mean they're optimal range. And, you know, when you're looking for the lowest risk associated with development of a heart attack or a stroke or other cardiovascular uh, problems, 0.5 is the number. So that's what we strive for in my office. And that's both tests, both C-reactive protein tests? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then what, what are the, what's the range that you like to see with homocysteine? So homocysteine is an interesting one. Um, uh, that literature points us to the marker at about 6.3. Okay, so there is a range, a reference range, or reference interval associated with that from the major lab companies. And you might see it go upwards of, you know, 11 or 12. But, but uh, every five points higher than six is associated with a 20% increased risk for cardiovascular events. It's actually a more powerful marker for, for having a heart problem than using cholesterol. So, and in fact, it's so powerful that there was a time when people referred to it as your H score. Everybody needs to know my H score. And so the, the, the magic, you know, what the literature points us to is 6.3. Okay. And then the risk goes up um, kind of pretty dramatically as you start to rise above 6. So you can still be in a normal range and have a relative in, uh, increased risk. For having a cardiovascular, you know, disease event, um, with it being in quote that normal reference interval. Can homocysteine be too low? Well, uh, it, I think it can actually be too low. So someone else has asked me about uh, homocysteine being um, too low. So when homocysteine is too low, you're wondering. I mean, there's a there's an optimal range for homocysteine, and I don't know on the lower scale if it's four or five, you know, or hanging around six or seven. Um, you have to wonder because it's involved in the methionine cycle, and it's also involved in the transsulfuration pathways. If it's low, is it low because the pathways are blocked? So when you start to measure the marker and you see, wow, that's interesting. It's not. It's, it's lower than six. I don't have many patients showing me low homocysteine. I don't think in all the ones I've ever measured, I've had people be too low. Okay. So it doesn't, um, it doesn't or, or, or get or off that way. Yeah. I, I don't see it. I think, but, but, but it is interesting. Um, when it's elevated, you have to go digging deeper now. Um, the second level of analysis you want to be noticing and try to find, wonder what are the pathways that seem to be blocked downstream of homocysteine that are causing it to rise um so you can kind of investigate where you want to support um but because it's so powerful of a marker for heart attack and 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 cancer actually um and just detoxification in general and you know methylation of dna activation too i mean you, you really think about it as a, as a potent marker to try to normalize in patients and um so we pay very much attention to trying to get that marker. Um, I try to get it under eight and as close to six as I can get. Um, and we have some pretty interesting stories I can tell you about people who come in with um, not knowing they're homocysteine. Every, whether they're young or old, you can find out a lot by just looking at those three markers. And how do you see these markers showing up in Lyme disease? Is there a pattern or is just know that somewhere in there these numbers are going to be off? Well, the last marker that does that may be uh, more controversial to folks is thinking about how these markers vary according to blood type. And, um, and that comes back to Lyme patients and other chronically ill patients. So we also pay attention and we note on every person who comes in the door what their blood type is. 
And it's interesting to see patterns of um, in our patients that vary on these markers by their blood type. And I'll just give you some growth patterns that I've seen. Um, people with, uh, and we see mostly A's and O's. Um, they're more common blood types. There are B's, and then there's the more rare AB. But I'll speak mostly to A's and O's. Um, so your blood type A folks tend to be poor at methylation and always have high homocysteine levels. I mean, you did, you generally find these folks struggling with homocysteine and you generally, as a rule, we, they may also have elevated CRP, but you will generally think of those people as struggling in that methionine transsulfuration pathway somehow. And then their diet really does impact some of those inflammation markers. Um, and in your O blood types tend to be people who struggle more with the nitric oxide endothelial issues and uh, joint pain. And um, they will have problems with their CRP. You will be, you know, surprised to see a lot of O's with CRP. I see a lot of O's with, that, that show up with vascular issues and also mood issues too, both both ways. But um, so when I see Lyme patients that come in the door or you know, they also usually have other, as you know, co-infections going on, whether it's fungal, mold, um, uh, CMV, viral infections, um, mast cell issues. I mean, the whole gamut, you look at these markers with people and you say, why are these people not able to clear their infections? What's what's keeping their body from naturally being able to, to get over this? You know, because if we agree that Lyme has been around for a long time, maybe not recognized as for what it is, but that the that the prevalence of Lyme, um, ticks that have Lyme or organisms that are carrying Lyme have been there in the in the natural environment for a long, long thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. How possible is it that people are more are less and less able to clear an infection that maybe years ago we could clear? And so when you start delving into the implement inflammatory markers and you see the variation in these particular markers, you can kind of see where and their pathways they are struggling. And that just helps me focus my efforts towards supporting the reduction of these markers in a more specific fashion for these people. And when I do that, they seem to improve all the way around without me having to give them a specific therapy that maybe I know about or I obviously can do if I I wanted to, if I want to look at it that way, like uh, using an antibiotic or... um, you know, I might use strategies that are solely about reducing the inflammatory patterns that I'm seeing that are very specific to patients. You can't do the one size fits all. There's not a a protocol for a high homocysteine because you got to incorporate the genomics and the lifestyle factors. You've got to put it all together to see what are the things that are acting on this person um, uniquely. But when I when I address them from that point of view, we get success pretty quickly. People feel better. But they also see the markers going down. You know, it's nice to see someone feeling better and there's something that's showing an effect. Something is improving. Right. So you're seeing Lyme disease. And when I say Lyme disease, I mean all all the infections that come along with it, whether it's viral or or mold mm-hmm. or co-infections that came along with the same tick or whatever. Just in fact, all of a sudden there's a, this infectious uh, pattern that that's happening. Uh, you're seeing that as part of an inflammatory, I'm going to say this in a, a strange way, but the inflammatory world that we're in. So perhaps, yeah. you know, th- this is just another piece of this overall toxic 
kind of environment we put ourselves in with chemicals and EMFs and you know, maybe stronger molds because we've been using antifungals now for 70 years and only the strong survive kind of thing. What does The molds in the ground saying, what doesn't kill us, make us stronger, but all the nice guys are gone and only the bad actors right. are left. So maybe, so is, is that fair? It is. And I think what I'm also been, been interested in doing is I, is I think about efficiency of markers that matter, right? Asking that question all the time. Um, is how do I how do I think about the basic mechanisms that the body uses that might be impaired to keep people from clearing these infections? So core things like 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 sulfation, like the value of understanding how the body's sulfation pathways can be, um, how core they are to uh, clearing um, clearing pathogens, um, improving circulation. Um, and uh, and understanding how in modern living over the course of my lifetime, how other as the world become has had more toxins in the environment, whether that's you know lack of natural sunlight, exposure to non-native EMF, how are these things really impacting these core processes that are making people seem like they're lying on the rise, but really it's less people are able to get over an infection they might have been able to sometime before because the environment, as we all know, you know, it's, it's more difficult, it's more challenging to the, to our bodies. You know, just the world we live in is more demanding um, that on our, on our bodies and um, more toxic. And so when you say toxic in what way, you know, I'm trying to ask, well, more specifically, what, what very basic pathways that have been conserved across evolution are the body has for communication and healing are being hampered by the lifestyle that people are living today. And I think that's what keeps people in these loops. And I have seen some interesting patterns and I like patterns because I trained and, you know, did acupuncture, but I'm very respectful of the medical systems that have been around long before, you know, I say modern medicine, but with the advent of the germ theory, things shifted away. I'm looking at patterns, right? To, um, the Arabic, the Chinese tradition. So, anyway. So, can we I back see, up here? I'm sorry. Yeah. So go ahead and finish your thought. No, no, no. So, I see these patterns showing up, and when I look at these markers and I reflect upon these deeper levels of what might be driving the expression of these markers, you know, how are these markers more fundamentally associated with core processes that are so important that they've been conserved throughout time? And that's where I want to look before I go upstream. I want to look there. So basically asking the question, how come the body hasn't been able to successfully fight off these infections? And sometimes it's simply load, right? There's just too many of them in the body and you're just completely overwhelmed. But, but how, did you, how did you get to that weakened point to, to begin with? And not like it's your fault. It's just, you know, your body was in a certain mode and that allows... A, a toehold for an infection or a pair of infections. One, Laurie, one of the things I'm interested in is the whole kind of in the innate immune system, the the macrophage differentiation between the M2 stage and the M1 stage, and that kind of it mm -hmm. does tie in with the with the helper cells, the Th1 and the Th2, and they're, they're and it seems like 
the body can get stuck in a loop there too. So your macrophages are either kind of, and this is a gross oversimplification, but it, it makes it understandable, is in a fighting mode, kind of the Hulk mode, or it's in Bruce Banner mode where it's repairing and fixing things. And it can get mm-hmm. stuck one side on the other. So when your knee swells up from Lyme disease and stays swollen up, that's stuck in the inflammatory mode. And it's having trouble getting back into the, the fix-it mode. But on the other hand, when you're kind of on the allergic side, and the the, the the tumor for forming side or cyst forming side, some of the weird cysts that show up with people with Lyme disease. Uh, the other is autoimmune type thing. That's on the, the Bruce Banner side. That's on the repair side. And there's not enough of the inflammation and breaking down and recycling of, of old cells that way. And well, let's I- see, where, go ahead. I have to say what I what I've been thinking a lot about, and this is uh, bringing in um, other other thought leaders that are that are for me mentors at this point, where I read a lot and they really influence um, where I operate from. And it'll be the work of Gerald Pollack and thinking about uh, structured water in the body, and bringing that into thinking also energetically about magnetism and the elect, you know, sort of unfolding in the whole bioenergetic part of the equation. So, you know, most of conventional medicine or any type of medicine that we do is based on biochemical aspects of things, but not really looking, think of it bioenergetically. And I, so I, I always tell people, I think that, that in the paradigm or the, the, the framework that we look at people now, it's uh, a bit like being in a pond in a boat with one oar and you push the oar, but you go in a circle because the, you need the other oar. And so biochemical and bioenergetics go together because the body is electrochemical. Whatever chemical gets converted into energy, and we need to think about what's going on energetically. So as you think about those ideas about biophysics or bioenergetics, you can't not think about uh, sunlight and its effect on, if you look at Pollock's work on water and the function of water in our body, and we know we get lost in the solute but we're not looking at the solvent and water is the solvent for which we are 99.9% water. And when you look at the the bad aspect of it, of it, and you understand a little bit about uh, how that affects cellular function, that takes us out of um, some of the traditional understanding and into thinking about what's been in the literature for a while that people have not adopted, even though there's lots of Nobel prizes on it. And people think about these things. It's just, it hasn't found its way into the common framework of thinking about um, how the body works, how the body truly is working. Why are these things really work? Why, why are the medicines that we even give and we, we achieve a success, we, we attribute the success to a mechanism, but the mechanism may not be at all what we have thought it is. That's, we might be getting success for a totally different reason. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah, that's exactly and right. Understanding and understanding what's really going on. And, right. and when you, you are an acupuncturist and you understand that what is the body conserving at all costs is the movement of energy. Without the life force moving through us, circulation, flow, you know, you die. Right. Uh, and so when you go back to those very core processes and start dissecting down to what are the things you want to understand and go there first for looking what's happening here, that takes you on a whole nother level. Well, it's, it's when you get to that fundamental, so... Th- Pollock's work is interesting. He's made a very accessible, he's written a very accessible book called The Fourth Phase of Water. And if you're a geek, and I assume you are because you're listening to this podcast, 
that it's a fa- if you haven't read the book, go ahead and buy it, get it from Amazon. It's a wonderful, wonderful read. And you can boil down the book to essentially one fact, and that's water gets structured in a similar way to freezing, but it's not in a frozen state and unstructured. And it's so that's just, we just have yin and yang, right? It goes back and forth between the two. And that's the engine of life. That's what makes it all work. And my point about the macrophages is that is on a, on a higher level. That's downstream from this basic functioning. If the body gets stuck in either mode, that's when things start breaking down. Flexibility, we're starting to hear about metabolic flexibility. Oh, you need to be able to burn carbs and fat. That's great. But what happens, a lot of people get stuck on either end for one reason, right? They can't metabolize fats very well, or they can't metabolize carbs very well. And that causes problems. The same thing happens in your immune system. Your immune system needs to be flexible. It needs to move back and forth between both states and be actually have mixes of the states at the same time. And we... We get stuck, and I, I actually think, Laurie, that some of the functions of antibiotics are to push the body's immune state from one phase to another. And I see right. some of that the evidence, some there. Yeah. So it's not even that the antibiotics killing anything; it's just resetting your immune system. Well, I would say uh, that that uh, Pollock's book, uh, "The Fourth Phase of Water," is a must-read for everybody, but also a, a other must-read for everybody is "Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life," which is his other book, which really talks about how the cells really function. Yeah, but well, let's hold on a second. That book's that's the second book. That's a tough read. That's a that's just a just so book. people. And, it's um, a great book. Yeah, but you're like one of the smartest people on the planet. Come on, you started no, 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 off. No. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's let's put start with the fourth phase of water. That makes it understandable. If you're still hungry for more, go to cells, gels, and the engines of life. It's an amazing book. It took me. Oh, I had to look up every other word in the book. <laughs> but you know, it was worth fighting through. <laughs> You know, distilling it down, I mean, I, I uh, personally, it's, a, it's, it's as exciting to me as reading some scintillating novel. I'm like, I go home, and I'm like, wow, so exciting to read this stuff. It just really connects so many dots for me. When you think about what's the body doing, what's the body actually doing? And if you think about the body's mostly proteins are in a hydrated or less hydrated state. And as they get hydrated, they behave uh, differently, unfolding and creating uh, structured water. And when the water is structured in the body in certain ways, in certain places around every hydrophilic protein um, or charged surface, water is going to, to, to organize itself. And in the structure or organization, it actually excludes all solutes. That means toxins. So when your structured water is in place correctly with a properly uh, a, a proper functioning protein, you know, that's not damaged then you don't have to worry about leaky gut and infection because the body is it's excluding it naturally. And so when I think about people breaking down is that they've had a problem in a certain place or space with being able to have that very natural process of how the cells communicate and proteins are communicating and water's moving and changing from a structured form to a less structured form and it comes in and goes. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that we can damage our proteins or come in the world with less than optimal configured proteins. But at the end of the day, we can't, we can't discount the impact of water and how water is, 
it's supposed to be structuring in our body and how moving away from the factors that help the body to structure water like exposure to infrared um, light. Uh, infrared light is a very powerful signal for your body to structure its water. And uh, that's missing uh, because people are not out in the sun. And um, we're getting um, the wrong kind of light in the middle of the day by getting too much blue light. And that goes into a whole lot of other discussion about the bioenergetics again and frequencies. But if you don't get the right frequency of a natural light, infrared light, you won't, you won't do what you're supposed to do. So you've got to start looking at why these modalities that we say, why does sauna help people, infrared sauna? Well, we say somehow it moves your toxins out and it helps to excrete, but truly it's structuring water. And when you structure water, you naturally excrete because water excludes a structured, uh, the structured barrier is impenetrable to, to most anything. So that is the body's natural excretion process is to set up those structures. And, that, and that's why sauna works. And when you look at some of the why cholestyramine is effective, we always, you know, use we lean on cholestyramine and we call it a binder. And we people think of binders as things that, I don't know, bind something and like a sponge and push it out. But what cholestyramine does is that, that because it's a charged or hydrophilic compound, it structures water and you take it in your gut. And it, uh, you know, it's not uh, absorbed systemically. So that local effect of allowing the gut to be, uh, create that healthy, structured water and things get excluded and excreted. So yes, it makes people feel better because it's, in, it's enhanced the body's natural ability to build its own natural defense system, which is structuring that water where it needs to be. So when I start thinking about it that way, it really helps me understand why a lot of these, what we call alternative therapies, or even some antibiotics, you know, have, a, they work similarly, you know, um, in the sense of where they're in the, ex, whether they're more of an extracellular uh, action or an intracellular action of it, as far as antibiotic goes. But when you start thinking about these things and at that core level about how they impact in the body and what that's doing for immunity and improving immunity, that's pretty interesting, right? It's super interesting. So let's wrap this up since we're talking about water. Let's go into just some of the basics. So you talked about getting exposed to infrared to help the internal water. What do you coach patients in terms of water and what you have them do? Well, um, first of all, we, we, we understand that patients largely don't drink enough water. So we all know that. And I, it seems like, wow, can we be really having a podcast on water? It's amazing, you know? Um, but that's what so I love about it. Um, so we tell our patients to drink, you know, they need to be more hydrated than they are. And as a rule of thumb, you know, I just tell people to buy their weight in half and drink it in water because people aren't doing that. And then the quality of the water has to be has to be considered. And uh, so we're not asking people to buy the most expensive water systems, but we do say you need to have glacial water. So we you can buy glacial water, but it needs to be water that's alive and has some bioactivity to it and not bulk. Now, I have containers that I put my water in. So if I start with a pretty good water, I want to structure the water in my container. I use a copper water bottle because copper is going to structure the water um and i when i drink it you can tell the difference in the water in the copper water bottle um i mean it's soft it, it actually when you start drinking structured water your body will be thirsty you will drink the more you drink the more thirsty you'll be and you'll be very uncomfortably thirsty because your body is actually hydrating um 
And so, so drinking water, if you can put it in a container where it can become structured, you can also buy structured water. Um, there are some on the market, and Pollock uh, does sell uh, structured water. It's called Divinia, and it's actually been tested, and it's uh, made, um, I think it's made in Idaho, um, but it does, it is, you know, laboratory tested, and um, he has a patented technology, so there you can drink the structured water. So you got to be hydrated first before you can structure it, um, and then activities that help your body be exposed to the uh, frequencies energetically to help your body naturally structure so you don't have to take so many pills is get out in the sunlight, literally get the sun on your skin. Um, if you, you know, in addition to doing that, there's infrared sauna. And actually, as Pollock says in his book, the other second most powerful uh, energy to structure water is acoustic energy. So that's, you know, thousands of years people have sung and have had healing sound therapies can be healing. So acoustic frequencies, we have a sound table in our office that, that pushes frequencies um, in the body. You lie on the table and we can select the frequencies um, that the body is receiving. So you lay on the table, you feel them vibrating in your body and you actually hear them. You put on headphones and you're actually listening to them at the same time. And they're very powerful. But but so singing and in and, and, and certain frequencies of, of, of music uh, tones are very, uh, will structure your water. It's like, I guess, sound waves will break up a, you know, kidney stone, right? So acoustic energy, infrared energy, uh, structured water. And we just try to point our patients to thinking about that um, in their daily life by getting out in the sun where you get your natural infrared. But infrared's coming all the time. It comes through your house, you know, at night, you get the infrared energy coming in. And then really mitigating the exposure that people have to the persistent blue light um, that seems to interfere with the body's signaling pathways is really being mindful of how we're receiving more artificial light than we need to be. As it, it, it relates to structuring and improving the structure of water in your body. Dr. Laurie, thank you so much. You've been very, very generous with your time and knowledge and just really inspiring that there are people out there like you who care deeply about the big picture, like how are we going to fix this mess of a system that we're in, and then also on the individual level too, and really taking care of patients and trying to figure out what they need to really heal and to and to support their body so that they're they they come out of your office not just free of some label, but truly in a healthier state. So thank you for what you're doing. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to chat this morning and I'll just say it's just for me as a clinician um, I don't think that what we're doing is creating something different I think we have to go back to what we've always known to be true and we have lost our way somewhat in this morass of uh, making things medicalized when what we've what we've got to get connected back is to the earth and to basic things that people have been doing for thousands of years right absolutely and just the more far afield we get to make life easier to live in a modern, the modern way, we've lost our connection to the things that ground us. And those, 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 light, those habits and those rituals of life, whether you, you know, circadian and exposure to the natural elements and doing these things, um, really, your body, that, that's how your body thrives. So reinventing those in modern ways for people just to, to incorporate into modern life is kind of our goal is our is my is my challenge and that's what i've been working on so thanks so much for letting me talk a little bit about it this morning 
this was a really good interview. And you know, you guys were talking about sound as kind of a healing modality. And it just reminds me how fun it is to feel the bass in your collarbone, you know, if the bass gets really loud. And that reminded me actually in the beginning when we first started interviewing people, how sensitive some people are to that bass sound and how it's it's intolerable for some people with Lyme disease. Any kind of frequency. Yeah. We had somebody write in a couple months ago and they were hearing mouse clicks and driving them absolutely nuts. And it may have been on our end. It may have been on the guest ends. We weren't sure. We tried to track it down and couldn't find it. But it's amazing when you're hypersensitive, various sounds, light, emotions, mold toxins, virus, everything gets to you, right? Mm -hmm. But on the neurological side, sounds are a big one. It's really quite amazing. I had a patient not too long ago, and her main issue was oxalates, I believe. So she was overproducing oxalates, particularly in her ears. And every time she hit a bump driving, it would set her off for sometimes three, four, five days in terms of pain and discomfort and a lack of ability to sleep. So this is serious. This neurological, when it gets ramped up, is serious business. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button, and that way you're not going to miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you. And if you really, really like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share the podcast with a friend. You just might save their life. Do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know Clark Kent had to call himself Superman because Lime Ninja was already taken? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.